2: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, We're going to be doing quite a lot of history today, aren't we, Zach? We
3: have a lot to cover. We have eight individuals to cover, all in the space of one episode. Um, so I think we're looking at maybe... Five hundred and fifty years of history in one go. I think this could be a record. Although we have done some ancienty stuff, where we've done entire periods that covered.
2: Yeah, but ancient historians, they're just like, oh, but we don't know that or that or that or that or that. So that that helps them power through several hundred years.
3: This is true. There are like nice big gaps, but that's not the case with this one. We are looking at the Harrys of England. We're joined by Theresa Cole, who was a teacher for 30 years before she turned to writing. She's the author of Henry V, The Life of the Warrior King and the Battle of Agincourt, The Norman Conquest, William the Conqueror's Subjugation of England. After the Conquest, The Divided Realm, 1066 to 1135, and The Anarchy, The Darkest Days of Medieval England. But today we're going to be talking about her new book, Harry of England, which looks at the eight kings, called Henry, who have ruled the country. Teresa, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing?
4: I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
3: So this is great. Um, We've got a a lot to cover. (laughs) So two of the eight were meant to be kings and the rest all just kind of happened, right?
4: Well, the two that were meant to be king was uh, Henry III and Henry VI. Coincidentally, they are the two youngest kings we've ever had. Uh, Henry III was only nine when he became king, and Henry VI was less than nine months old when he became king. Um, But they were the two heirs to the throne. All the others were either younger sons or usurpers.
2: So let's start at the beginning with Henry I. When does he come to the throne? And given that he's only the fourth son of William the Conqueror,
4: how does it come about? Right, he came to the throne in 1100. Um, how it came about, he had three older brothers. One of them, Richard, was killed in an accident in the New Forest fairly soon after Henry was born. They were distinctly not a happy united family. Um, all through, they were all you know, against each other the whole way through. Um, when William the Conqueror died, they were all sons of William the Conqueror. When he died, uh, Robert, is the eldest surviving son, got Normandy. William, known as William Rufus, was the king's favourite son and he made sure he got England, um, sending him over to England quickly to grab the throne. Henry got £5,000 in silver um, and that was all he got. Um, But for the next few years, while all the brothers at one time or another were fighting each other, um, he would be backing first one, then the other one. He ended up backing William Rufus uh, in England. Uh, how, the, how it sorted out between William and Robert was Robert went off to the Crusade in um, 1096 and basically mortgaged uh, Normandy to William Rufus. Um, and while he was gone, um, while Henry was supporting William Rufus in England, William Rufus went hunting again in the New Forest. And again, there was a terrible accident and he was killed, um, shot by an arrow in the New Forest. Coincidentally or not, um, Henry was right on hand in the same hunt. Um, Instead of looking after his brother's body, as you might expect, and making sure everything was done properly, he rushed off straight away to nearby Winchester, seized the treasury, got himself acclaimed king, and a matter of three days later um, was crowned king in Westminster quickly before Robert got back off crusade. So by the time Robert got back, Henry was already crowned and anointed as King of England. And that was more or less it. Um, Robert made a few half-hearted attempts to claim the throne, but he never had a chance. And from 1106, when Henry defeated him in Normandy, uh, he he spent the rest of his life as a prisoner in England. Very comfortable prisoner. Um, He ended up in Cardiff Castle learning Welsh and writing poetry. Um, but, uh, he was nonetheless a prisoner and Henry got the throne.
3: Is there any suggestion of foul play with the hunting accident? Um, because I mean, it happened just down the road from me, um, in, in the new forest. And it's one of those things that the, the legend goes that the, the arrow sort of deflects off of a, um, a tree, doesn't it? An oak tree and then strikes the king in the heart which is a pretty unlucky hunting accident. But as you say, you know, there is this um, sense that Henry sort of on hand to capitalise pretty swiftly afterwards. And um, am I right in thinking that the guy responsible um, ends up receiving land from Henry further down the line?
4: Uh, he was certainly not badly treated. He was he was never, Walter Tyrrell was his name, um, the one who was blamed for it. Um, he rushed off to France quite rapidly afterwards, but nobody ever seemed to take any action against him. Um, he was a relative of the Declare family who were treated very well by Henry um, and who supported Henry. At the time, um, nobody seemed to think anything about it. I mean, he had another brother killed in the New Forest. It was just one of those things but there's been a lot of suspicion since that it, it was very convenient, the right time, the right place. Um, and, you know, he, he, I mean, I, I spent years teaching law and in law, you say who benefits, who benefited there? Absolutely, Henry. So <laughs> the finger has been pointed. One of the later chronicles went out of his way to say he wasn't there. He was somewhere else and give him an alibi. But it's very weak. And it does sound like a lot after the event <laughs> trying to trying to uh, justify it.
3: Now one story that doesn't have that same kind of suspicion hanging over it is the white ship disaster uh, isn't it? so talk us through what that happens because it always strikes me as a really sad kind of what if um, the white ship disaster and, and what does it result in anarchy?
4: right okay so Henry the first holds the record. For the number of royal bastards that he um, fathered and acknowledged, Um, he had 20 illegitimate children, but he only had one legitimate son, and that was William. And um, William was about 17 at the time of the White Ship disaster. He'd been in Normandy backing up his father in wars against France. They succeeded. They defeated the French. Everything was triumph. They were on their way back home to England um, from Barfleur, don't know if you know the coast of Barfleur at all on the Cotentin. It's incredibly rocky. If you go to the harbour there, there are arms of rock all the way along the coast pointing out to sea. So uh, in Barfleur, there was um, a guy called Thomas, who was the son of the person who had commanded the ship that took William the Conqueror to England. His ship was called the White Ship, the Blanche Neffe. Um, And he wanted to take Henry back over to England. Henry said, no, I've got my own ship, but you can take my son. So William, age 17, plus a lot of the younger courtiers, um, plus many, many other hangers-on and members of the household, plus a cargo of wine, um, was going to embark from Barfleur in the white ship. Uh, Nice, calm night, end of November, cold but calm. But the people, having succeeded getting the king's son on board, they are all saying, give us something to drink, let's celebrate, give us something to drink. So they opened three of these casks of wine and drank a lot, apparently. Um, There were a lot of people on board, but they still must have had something like a gallon of wine each. They were all roaring drunk. It was a young man showing off to his friends, um, showing what he could do, plying them with drink. The whole lot, the guards, the rowers, everybody, uh, was roaring drunk before they set off late at night, in the dark, on this rocky coast from Normandy. Um, The other thing was they decided... Let's have a race. Henry had gone a couple of hours before um, in calmness. We're going to overtake him. So they set off at a great pace out of this harbour at Normandy, barely got out of the harbour and struck a rock. Um, Not that far from land, but far enough. A boat was launched to to take the air, this Prince William, um, to rescue him, get him to shore. One of his illegitimate half sisters Um, was screaming on the boat, please rescue me. So he goes back to rescue her. whereupon everybody jumps in his little boat and sinks it and they all drown. (laughs) So the ship, the white ship was sunk. One person was saved. The only one person recorded as being saved was a butcher from Rouen called Berthold who clung to the mast until he was rescued. Um, Everybody else drowned. Um, And that was the end of Henry I's nice, neat, legitimate passing on the crown to his son. Um, So what was he left with? It was said, incidentally, that he never smiled again afterwards. What he was left with was one legitimate daughter who was variously known as Adelaide or Matilda or Maud. Um, I tend to call her Matilda, who had not been in England since she was eight years old. She'd been married off to the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, So she was married to him. She was Empress of Germany. Uh, At the time, that was all basically that Henry had left as legitimate heirs. So when her husband died a few years, five years later, he immediately recalled Matilda to England and persuaded all the the barons of England to take an oath to accept her that she was going to be heir to the throne after him. In the meantime, he'd married her off or soon after that, he married her off to Geoffrey of Anjou. Geoffrey Plantagenet, which is where Plantagenet comes in, um, which she hated, the French hated, the English hated, um, but it was Henry's plan. She had to have a husband. He wanted an alliance with Anjou. So she had to marry Geoffrey of Anjou. Um, Okay, (laughs) eventually he persuaded them. They had a fairly rocky marriage. He persuaded them they had to be reconciled and they did have a son, Henry. In fact, they had three sons in the end. But at the time when Henry I died, they were all in dispute with Henry because he had not handed over some castles that he should have handed over to Geoffrey of Anjou. And he hadn't at all explained what kind of role Geoffrey of Anjou was going to have uh, if his daughter was going to be Queen of England. Um, So there was a big dispute going on. Uh, Matilda and Geoffrey of Anjou were miles away from Northern France, where Henry I died, the surfeit of lampreys, the probably food poisoning, uh, in 1135. But very close at hand was Henry's nephew Stephen, who was the son of Henry's favourite sister Adela of Blois. Um, Stephen had probably been brought up on tales of Henry rushing quickly to Winchester and seizing the treasury and seizing the crown. And he decided at some point while Henry was on his deathbed that he was going to do the same. So while all the major nobles, including various fairly important illegitimate sons of Henry, were gathered around Henry's deathbed, Stephen was at the coast about to take ship for England. By the time the corpse of Henry was returned to England, Stephen had got himself crowned. So he took the throne, was not going to get away with it, immediately challenged by Matilda and her husband and various other supporters. And that was the anarchy Um, for a period of considerable amount of time. It was a civil war. It's it's a civil war that never gets mentioned in England um, between Matilda and her cousin Stephen fighting over the throne of England. Stephen got the throne. Matilda very nearly got it back in 1141. Um, she defeated Stephen, imprisoned him in the castle at Bristol, Was got as far as Westminster, uh, almost within touching, touching distance of the crown, and then the Londoners threw her out, and that was more or less the end of her best claim to get the throne. So that was um, up until... Um, almost the end of Stephen's life he held on to the throne but he was continually being challenged for it um, by various factions in England. We have
2: to fast forward to um, Henry the I's grandson for our next Harry don't we? Henry II, um he I always remember him again this, this period isn't my strength he's the one that seizes quite a bit of France doesn't he? He didn't
4: exactly seize France. He um, inherited quite a lot of it. I've okay. got to remember that the, the bit that the French king had at this time was a very small section of what we now see as France, um, the Ile de France, just around Paris region, basically. So Geoffrey of Anjou, in the course of the anarchy, had seized Normandy and he handed that over. Um, Henry, the, Henry II, incidentally, was Matilda's son, um, who was about two years old at the time that Henry I died. So when he got more or less of age, uh, his father, Geoffrey, handed him over Normandy. When um, Geoffrey died, he then inherited Anjou and Maine. And then before he got his hands on England, he actually married Aquitaine. (laughs) He married um, Eleanor of Aquitaine and took over Aquitaine as well. So he wasn't actually seizing France. Um, he inherited a lot and he married quite a lot more. He did a lot of defending of it, um, which involved a fair amount of fighting, but he didn't do too much fighting to get it.
3: So he's another one who's not meant to get the throne. Is is, is that right?
4: Well, Henry the certainly meant him to get the throne. Uh, he was the one that was going to save the dynasty. Uh, people would put up with Matilda because they could see Henry coming along afterwards. But as I say, it didn't work out like that. So he was basically um, didn't see very much of his mother. Um, she was in England most of the time when he was a child. Uh, he, <laughs> he had a couple of escapades in England before he actually became king. <clears throat> when he was about nine, he came over for a year to sort of boost the Um, Matilda's side of the Civil War, um, stayed in Bristol for a year, probably learned English there. Um, And then when he was a little later on, when he was about 15, without telling either Geoffrey or Matilda, he brought his own expedition over, a whole gang of mercenaries that he promised profit in England, uh, who fought... (laughs) Very, very um, feebly against two castles, were easily defeated and then had the nerve to say, right, I can't pay my troops. Um, Mother, will you pay them off for me? No. Uncle Robert in Bristol, will you pay them off for me? No. And then the biggest cheek of all, OK, King Stephen, you want to get rid of me, you pay off my men and I'll go home, which Stephen did. <laughs> he has got some
2: brass front, hasn't he?
4: He got Normandy, yeah, he could go back to Normandy, he, he was safe over there. But then finally, what happened in the end, everybody in England was getting completely fed up of this civil war. Matilda had retired to to Normandy. um, And in the end, um, Henry did launch his own campaign to come and become king of England um, to challenge Stephen. It was not until 1153. And by that time, there were so many of the nobles in the country were so sick of fighting. They more or less made settlements between them. They weren't going to fight anymore. So there should have been a battle at Malmesbury and there wasn't. There was a snowstorm and everybody went home. Um, There should have been a battle at Wallingford and there wasn't because the the nobles simply refused to fight. And they said, no, you've got to negotiate a settlement. So great British compromise. um, The nobles forced a settlement between Stephen and Henry that Stephen would adopt Henry as his heir. And when he died, Henry would take over as king. So that was really how Henry got the throne. He never actually fought for it. Um, Stephen died the following year and 1154, Henry II became king um, with a a huge, what they call it, the Angevin Empire from the borders of Scotland to the Pyrenees was basically all Henry's and it took a bit of holding on to.
2: In terms of Henry III, he inherits, an absolute nightmare at the age of nine, doesn't he? Why is this?
4: Again, this is <laughs> Henry the Second. If you, if you like, had a charmed start to his life. Mm. The end was not so nice. Um, he fell out with all of his sons and his wife at various times. Um, when he died, the two sons that were left were Richard, known as the Lionheart in England, and John. Richard's only aim was to go on crusade, so he basically sold everything in England that he could lay hands on, including all the offices of state, um, to raise money for his crusade, which didn't go as well as he thought. He then got kidnapped and ransomed, so more money went. England was practically bankrupted by then. When he was killed um, in France soon afterwards, King John took over. Uh, He was the father of Henry III. He had a talent for falling out with everybody, um, including all the nobles, the Pope, um, everybody around. He had been great friends with Philip of France at one point, but he fell out with him as well. Lost all of the French Empire. Um, Trying to raise taxes to get it back again upset even more people, fell out with his barons and ended up having a war with his barons. Um, Originally, they tried to negotiate. We have the Great Charter, Magna Carta, 1215. Nobody was going to stick to that. War broke out again the following year. They invited even the French prince to come in and support them and offered him England um, to get rid of King John, which um, he started to succeed. He got half the kingdom by the time John died, um, died of uh, some sort of, again, food poisoning probably, Um, leaving his son nine years old. Um, to take over with half his country ruled by the French um, and and the rest sort of up in arms in the middle of a war. So as you say, it was a complete nightmare uh, when this nine-year-old boy took over the country.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
4: Listen to Constant
1: Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And it doesn't get any easier for him, does it? Because we've got Second Baron's War and... Am I right in saying that there are miracles associated with him after his death? So it's quite a complex individual that we're we're talking about here.
4: Well, Henry III was probably, out of all the Henrys, I think I'd probably find him the nicest one to get on with, but he was absolutely useless as a king. He um, He got his country won back for him by this famous knight, William Marshall, basically, who'd served Henry II, Richard and John before he got along to... Um, henry III. so he started off okay prince louis was thrown out he got his country back but he was so very well brought up he was told he had to rely on advice and he did he (laughs) relied on everybody's advice um he really had no sort of policies of his own uh he had favorites he favored first one then the other um simon de Montfort at one point was one of his favorites Uh, given lands in England, married the king's sister, uh, which was most surprising. Henry said he approved it at the time, but only because he'd seduced his sister. Um, So, yeah, he, uh, he was he just had no personality and he tried to get on with everybody, rather unlike his father. And it just got him into more and more trouble. He married Eleanor of Provence, which seemed like a really good idea except that her father had this idea that he wanted to make all all his sons um, extremely influential all over Europe. So when he married Ella of Provence, a great influx of her relatives came over with her uh, and he gave them all positions at court and lands and goodness knows what. Um, And his father having messed up the country for him, his mother then did the same. Isabella of Angoulême was his mother went back to France. She was one of those who was given absolutely no role at all in bringing up her son. So she went back to France, married a French noble, had her uh, money in England stopped because she wasn't supposed to do that. So they sided with the French. Um, And then later on, they fell out with the French king and tried to get Henry to fight in France, which he did, trying to raise taxes, um, raised a lot of money, again, upset his barons by doing that because they didn't want him to do it. Failed completely in France, fell out with Simon de Montfort um, because of his failure and because of various other things, came back to England. His mother's second family then came back with him. And this is about the first time we hear people in England talking about foreigners Um, up until time of King John, most people in England had lands in France as well, so the French weren't foreigners. But from Henry III's time on, they were foreigners, and he was filling his court with foreigners and listening to all these foreigners and not doing what the, the English barons wanted him to do. So that basically, the demands for taxes, um, the, the favouring of foreigners, uh, again led to the split with the, the English barons, and that, as you say, led to the, the Second Barons' War which uh, was led by Simon de Montfort, who by this time was trying to lead the barons against the king. It went okay to start with for Henry, but then he was captured at the Battle of Lewis and trailed around behind Simon de Montfort for a year, being told what he had to do Um, and um, eventually was victorious. Um, His son Edward had escaped from captivity and led an army against Simon at the Battle of Evesham and Simon de Montfort was killed and Henry was returned to the throne basically by his son, um, by his son Edward. Um, So he got his throne back. So that that was the reason, really, for the Second Baron's War. As for the miracles after the, the end of his life was fairly peaceful. The last few years of his life, and it probably gives us this idea of Merry England, um, you know, the sort of medieval nice time. His wife declared that there were miracles after he died. Nobody else did. Um, even his son said he was extremely dubious about that. Um, and so, although there were a few ideas that he ought to be canonised, it never really came to anything. Um, edward the sorry Edward I, his son um, was not at all interested in getting his father canonized in terms
2: of henry the fourth we've got go a long way forward to find him. Is it true that he's the first English king in over three hundred years at this point? His first language is English.
4: he probably was um because, as I said just now that England was becoming more English um although Most of the state documents were still done in French or Latin. Um, All the church matters were done in Latin. More and more now, the the ordinary people, the barons, were English-born. Henry IV was English-born. He was born in Lincolnshire. Um, He probably was, you know, his first language. So, yeah.
3: So talk us through him coming to the throne. Uh, In the notes, I have a, a note from Alex that says, this is a ballsy story, um, which, is, which is always, you know, a tantalizing hint uh, when you get the note train episode. So tell us about this ballsy story.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
4: Well, it wasn't in the sense that he had to fight for England. Um, (laughs) This was the time of Richard II. Okay, so we've fast forwarded a, a good way through three Edwards now. Richard II was 12 when he came to the throne. He was the grandson of Edward III. The third son of Edward III was John of Gaunt, who was the father of Henry IV. Okay, so you've got Edward III, his son Edward, and then another son, Lionel, and then John of Gaunt. All right. So it's Edward the Black Prince's son is Richard II. John of Gaunt probably had more money than him, more power than him. He he was the Duke of Lancaster. Um, He was probably the most powerful person. A lot of people thought he wanted the throne for himself, but he didn't. Um, So Richard II, like many before him, managed to upset a lot of his barons. Um, They thought he had favourites. They thought he was a weak king. Looking at it, he probably was bipolar, I think. He had very strange mood swings, um, and in the course of which he upset a lot of people. Particularly, there were a group that wanted him, um, wanted to control him. Um, That's his his uncle, Duke of Gloucester, um, Earl of Warwick, two Arundel brothers, Thomas and Richard. um, And they'd launched a, a campaign against Richard II to denounce all the people that were advising him um, and have them declared traitors. And they were called the Lord's Appellant. And Henry IV, when he was still Henry Bolingbroke, um, got drawn into this to uh, help these people to, um, to challenge the supporters of Richard II and have them put to death. So they did that. They trimmed the power, if you like, of Richard II, who was forced to pardon them afterwards. But he never forgot and some years down the line, he started taking revenge. So Gloucester uh, and Warwick and the Arundels all came to fairly sticky ends. And two others, that's Henry Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray, who'd also been involved as Lords Appellant, they were saying to each, We're going to be next, the king's going to come after us next. Whether Mowbray said it to Henry or Henry said it to Mowbray, it came before the king. The king basically decided he didn't want either of them, so he exiled them. Um, John of Gaunt at that time was still very powerful, um, still advising the king. He said nothing at all about his son being exiled. When he died soon after, however, Richard seized all of his money. Henry thought he was going to be pardoned and brought back, but he wasn't. Richard instead seized all his money. So when Richard had problems in Ireland uh, and was taking an army to Ireland, Henry Bolingbroke lands himself on the furthest shore of England at Ravenspur on Humberside. Um, again, he said he'd only come to get his land back, his, his John of Gaunt's land back initially. But he got a lot of support from the north of England. As he came south, he got more support in the south. The Duke of York, which Richard had left in charge panicked and said Richard come back quick um, but he was a bit slow coming back by which time Henry had got most of the country behind him. So by the time Richard came back from Ireland Henry was almost king. Uh, he, there was a, a certain amount of trickery went on to split Richard's army to trick Richard in coming. Him. Um, by that time it was fate accompli. Okay so Henry IV then declared himself King of England. Soon afterwards Richard II, who was imprisoned at Pontefract Castle, died or was murdered. Um, So Henry was okay except he probably regretted for the rest of his life that he'd ever done it. Um, There were constant rebellions, uh, various ones against uh, relatives of Richard initially until it was clear that he was dead Glendower's rebellion in Wales, Uh, there was the Mortimers supporting Glendower because they were descended from the elder brother Lionel, who was older than um, John of Gaunt, Um, and then one involving the Archbishop of York, Archbishop Scrope, that was put down and he executed the Archbishop. Whereupon, almost instantly, he was struck by this mystery illness which was put down as leprosy. Um, It was probably something different. Uh, There's a thing called St. Elmo, uh, sorry, Erisepolis, I think it's called, um, a skin disease, but it tormented him for the rest of his life. Um, And they all said it was leprosy because he killed the archbishop. So the rest of his life really was not very happy as king. (laughs)
3: Shall we start talking about? Um, a couple of the ones who folks might be more familiar with because next up we have Henry V of Agincourt fame but the path that he takes to get to that monumental battle is a slightly convoluted one so talk us through it.
4: Okay so he was the son of Henry the Fourth. he was actually a friend of Richard II um, and quite fond of Richard but he took over, he supported his king when, uh, his father when his father became king. Um, when Henry IV died, he, Henry V was considerably more popular. Um, he revived the claim that had originated with Edward III to the throne of France. Um, Edward III claimed the throne of France through his mother, but they said they didn't have female. Succession so they wouldn't have it, hence the, the Hundred Years' War. That had lapsed just before the time of Richard II. Henry the sorry, Henry V now decided to revive it. So he negotiated. Were, at the time, the, the king of France was mad. He had this insanity where for a long period of time he thought he was made of glass. And there were two factions in, in France um, supporting each other, uh, uh, sorry, fighting. Um, fighting for the crown of France, Henry chose one, his father had chosen the other, he negotiated with both when he became king, he said, I'm the rightful king of France, you negotiate to give me France. While he was negotiating, he built up an army, and in um, 1415, he set off for France. The idea was he was going to do in France the same as he'd done previously in Wales. Basically, one town, one region at a time, conquer the lot. So he started with Arfleur at the mouth of the River Seine, which he thought he'd get easily, but he didn't. Um, It was quite a long siege, uh, marshy ground. Shakespeare goes into all of this once more into the breach, this sort of thing that everybody's familiar with. Um, He was right in some ways, wrong in that there were mines, there were no mines. It was marsh. Everybody got dysentery. Um, but halfleur did fall. The French at that time were completely disorganised. They'd been so busy fighting each other, they couldn't get an army together. The trouble was that by the time he got halfleur it was basically the end of the fighting season. He'd raised a load of money to get there, got nothing to show for it, but one town. So he decides, right, I'm going to march across France to Calais basically a showing off. I'm going to march through my France to Calais to show that nobody can touch me. He thought he'd go across the River Somme, the same as Edward III had done. But when he got there, he found that the French had got mobilised and it was held against him. So he had to trek miles and miles inland down the River Somme, shadowed by the French army all the way, found a crossing place eventually, and then was almost immediately confronted by the French army at Agincourt, the most famous battle um, Henry uh, ever fought. He was incredibly lucky. He, he um, two things were in his favour. It was pouring with rain. The weather was abominable, and the field that the French had chosen to fight on was a ploughed field, so it was like a quagmire. Also, the French had got so many nobles now in their army that they were sure they were going to win. They all wanted to be in the front row so they could all capture the king themselves and hold him to ransom. He very bravely marched halfway down the field to where it was narrower to confront them. Um, They were all standing there for hours facing each other because the one that started first usually lost. So they then fired um, English arrows, volley of arrows into the French, which provoked them to charging. They charged down this ploughed field, got bogged down. The front rank um, got bogged down were shot down by the english archers and everybody else there were so many of them crowding behind trying to push forward that they all just crowded on top of each other they could hardly lift their swords um, many of them just fell over in the mud were suffocated by people falling on top of them it was a complete and utter disaster for the french there were so many thousands of french um, slaughtered there including the cream of the nobility um, so Shakespeare was dead right on that. There was hardly any English losses and huge French losses. Um, and Henry was then the, the hero of Agincourt. What Shakespeare wasn't right on was that he was not immediately afterwards proclaimed king of France. That took another five years, uh, more campaigning, more fighting all over France and also um, the assassination of his main rival, who was John the Fearless of Burgundy, who was assassinated by the Dauphin of France. Um, which left the way clear for Henry. Henry then says, right, I'm taking over. So 1420 Treaty of Troy, Henry is going to marry the French king's daughter, Catherine, and he's going to be the heir to the French king and take over when the French king dies. Unfortunately, fighting for even more campaigns in France in the couple of years after that, Henry himself got dysentery and died two months before the French king, so he never became king of France. Just, and you cannot get um, any more
2: far removed from uh, Henry V with Henry VI, can you? He was never very impressive. Um, (laughs) To what extent is he personally to blame for the Wars of the Roses?
4: Well, he was never very impressive because he was only nine months old when he became king. Um, And there was never any united united sort of family behind him to keep him, um, to support him. Whether he was responsible, I would say that the blame for the Wars of the Roses goes back to Henry IV. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) If he hadn't seized the throne, there would not have been this division between the House of Lancaster, which was him, and the House of York, uh, which was the descendants of Lionel, um, which came down to be Richard of York, who was descended on his mother's side through Lionel and on his father's side through another son um, of Edward III, who could claim through the the Lionel side that he was uh, superior claimed to the throne than Henry VI. Initially he didn't. Um, He, he was fairly supportive to start with. Um, But when there was so much division among the Lancastrians themselves as to what they wanted to do and what they didn't want to do, um, he basically stepped in at various points to try and calm things down. He was probably a, a, he would have been a more effective ruler. Again, Henry VI was one of these who's trying to please everybody and pleases nobody. Um, he spends he much of his reign,
2: or some of his reign, in a catatonic, schizophrenic trance as well. Yeah,
4: um, th- that was probably the result of losing France. Yeah. France was <laughs> stead- steadily lost uh, from the time he became king onwards um, through Joan of Arc and various mismanagement. And when they finally lost the last bit of um, France, when the news was brought to Henry the Sixth, he he literally went catatonic for over a year.
2: Um, My favourite bit about his story is then uh, Margaret of Anjou puts a baby in his arms and says, "Look what we did." And you're like, mm, "But did he really?" He's in a trap.
4: Yeah, for a start, he, when when he f- she first gave him his son um, Edward, he didn't even look at him. Uh, he was so catatonic he didn't even look at him. When he eventually woke up um, in fifty four, uh, he said, "Well." you know this this must be a miracle this must be the the holy ghost's doing um (laughs) he he has no memory of it of anything at all like that uh his wife in fact would have been a better king than he was she Uh, was
2: brilliant wasn't she
4: she was a very feisty lady indeed. Okay. She came from a feisty family um, and she could could not see any reason why should, she shouldn't have been regent when Henry was catatonic. Her grandmother had been regent um, for the Dauphin of France um, and done it very successfully. Um, but she was ridden over. Richard of York was given that post as protector of England. And she always thought he was after the throne. And that's why she was so vehemently against Richard of York and probably persuaded her husband to be against Richard of York as well he did try and reconcile them there's this famous day um, when they were threatened with French invasion where he tried to get them all to be friends they called it the love day and he made them all march in procession to St Paul's Cathedral with all the enemies side by side marching through London with gritted teeth and all their followers probably at the side of their hands on their swords Um, but it came to nothing and in the end the whole lot erupted um, in, in what we call the Wars of the Roses, uh, which you know eventually led to um, the defeat of um, Henry VI. He was deposed a couple of times. Um, he was deposed, first of all, uh, in 1461 after the Battle of Towton and then again, um, when the, when the Yorkists fight among themselves, they put him back on the throne briefly. Um, then, then he was deposed again the following year. So he had an on and off sort of existence. And throughout that time, it was his wife, it was Margaret of Anjou, who was organising the armies and raising um, funds and soldiers to fight for him. And it was when she and their son were decisively defeated at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Um, At the time, Henry himself was a prisoner again in the Tower of London. And again, he's another one who was very likely murdered um, while he was in the Tower of London uh, after the Battle of Tewkesbury.
2: I think there's a my teacher always used to frame it that um, sort of he he was still being trolleyed along to these battles whilst he was trancing it's um, the oh, it yeah. case of plonk him on the battlefield, surround him with a guard to stop him being captured, um, and then you can sort of say he took part in the battle, but actually he was. The, 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 share it's bizarre.
4: The one story is that he he was sitting in his tent playing with his fingers and singing through one battle. Um, so, yeah, he was there uh, in body, but not really in spirit. It was it was done. Some of them in his name, anyway, um, but he wasn't. He took no part. The only time he ever put armour on uh, was when there was a, an uprising in, um, of the, the, the um, peasantry, if you like, Cade's Rebellion. Um, and then as soon as they approached London, he ran away to Kenilworth. So he really wasn't that kind of king at all.
3: Shall we move on to a very different prospect, Henry VII, kind of known as the master administrator, leaving the country in a, a pretty great shape. But the route to that is a simple. So talk us about his rise to power, because ultimately he shouldn't even have, have sat on the throne, he, had the normal course of events played out. But then also, what was he like as king?
4: He has probably the least claim to the throne of anybody who's ever sat on the English throne. <laughs> um, through his mother, he gets his tiny weeny little dot of, of royal blood. She was Margaret Beaufort. She was the great granddaughter of John of Gaunt, but on the illegitimate side of the family, because John of Gaunt took as a mistress his children's nanny, um, Catherine Swinford, and had a whole host of children, the Beaufort family through them, and she was descended from these Beauforts. So they'd been declared illegitimate and barred from the throne long before. Although supposedly that had been overturned, um, so that was his. That was um, Henry the Seventh's mother. She's a piece right. of
2: work though isn't she like she uh, was she not fourteen when she had him and it yeah ruined her in terms of having any more children but she was like a force to be reckoned
4: with she was eventually um <laughs> she wasn't she wasn't that much of a force to start with she was repeatedly married off to people um, because she was a de- desirable heiress um so she, she the other side of the family was the Tudor family and how they come into the business is um <laughs> like with um Henry III's mother given no role in his upbringing Henry VI's mother Catherine of France was given no role at all in his upbringing she went off and married Owen Tudor who was her master of horse um so she married into the Tudor family um, and Henry VII's father was their son Edmund Tudor so that's where the Tudor bit comes in so they were fairly strongly Welsh they had much Greater claims in Wales than they ever did in England. His childhood was, I suppose, fairly troubled. He was passed around a bit. There was Uncle Jasper um, in Pembroke that he stayed with for a while. But as the fortunes of the, the Wars so of the Roses changed, he was passed to various other people to be a ward. And then eventually, after Tewkesbury, ended up in Brittany. So he spent most of his um, adolescent years in Brittany, um, calling himself. Earl of Richmond uh, while he was there. He was pretty much a pawn. Various people in Europe, in Burgundy, in France, and so on, thought that if they could get hold of him, they could threaten Edward in England with putting him on the throne, but it never came to anything. Um, and it was only really uh, when they were thrashing around to find somebody who would go on the throne to represent um, their side of the battle. Um, the the, the Lancastrian side of the battle, um, that they eventually pitched up on Henry Tudor um, over there in in Brittany. Um, As as Winston Churchill commented, he was the nearest thing to royalty that they'd got. So at various times when they decided then that they wanted to get rid of Richard, um, particularly one of the big agitators was um, Bishop Morton, who later became Cardinal Morton um, under Henry VII, he was one of the big agitators, um, supporting um, Henry when he was uh, over in Brittany, um, persuading him to come to England. There was a couple of um, fairly lukewarm attempts before 1485 to put him on the throne. And then, um, of course, the Battle of Bosworth against Richard, by which time his mother had got herself very much into court circles. She was Lady Stanley. She was the wife of Um, Thomas Stanley, um, who was supposedly supporting Richard uh, at the Battle of Bosworth, whose forces came in on the winning side and made it decisive for Henry Tudor uh, at the end. She, for a long time, she'd been married for some time to to, um, Lord Stanley. She was friendly with Elizabeth Woodville, who was Edward IV's queen. She'd for a long time been saying that um, Edward's daughter, Elizabeth, ought to marry Henry. And she'd been pushing that for years and nothing had come of it. Now, after the Battle of Bosworth, that was what was going to happen. Um, Henry VII was going to claim the throne and he was going to marry Elizabeth of York um, and therefore theoretically end the Wars of the Roses. He had even less claim to the throne than Henry IV. He never even tried to justify it. He had his coronation first and then called Parliament. And Parliament says, yes, you're king. We're declaring this to avoid ambiguity, Um, which which is an interesting way of declaring somebody to king. Um, So, yeah. Um, So that was his claim to the throne. As regards being a great administrator, he was he was a great getter of money. Um, He was determined. Having been on his travels and out of money for most of his childhood and youth, he was determined he wasn't going to be out of money again. So he invented all sorts of different ways um, of getting money. Archbishop Morton as he was then and then became Cardinal Morton, you may have heard of Morton's Fork, this idea that if you've got a lot of money you can spare some for the king, if you're not showing a lot of wealth well obviously you're saving a lot of money and therefore you can spare some from your savings for the king and so all these people were um, persuaded to cough up money um, and and fill the coffers um, of Henry VII. He was though very keen on trade and one of the big things that he did which had lasting effects from that day to this. He was one of the sponsors of John Cabot's voyages to North America when he went off and discovered Newfoundland and North America. Incidentally, he put none of his own money into the profit, into the the voyage, but he was going to get a fifth of the profits if there were any. Um, So that that link to North America um, was, if you like, started by Henry VII. And as you say, he did leave the, the place very well provided with money um, but his big trouble was that his son again died, um, his son and heir that he would put all his hopes into, like Henry the first um, died before he came to the throne, uh, which left us with the second son, Henry, who then became Henry the eighth.
2: Did indeed. Um, we're not fans of him at History Hack. Uh, what can you find to say that's new about someone who has received a massive amount of attention?
4: I suppose what you can find to say is there's not much said about his childhood, which was a very strange childhood. Um, he, nobody ever, because history goes in slices and we slice it off at 1485, nobody ever says, well, what was Henry VIII like? Who did he take after? Um, he, to my mind, he took after his grandfather, Edward IV, who was red haired, loved life, enjoyed himself to the full, uh, was a womaniser, um, got into trouble various ways with women he was supposed to have married or should have married and didn't marry Um, Henry VIII was a chip off that old block if you like Um, and that was encouraged by his mother um, Elizabeth of York who was fond of her father and she encouraged Henry in those sort of ways he got no encouragement from his father at all everything went to Arthur because Henry Seventh in Brittany had become besotted by King Arthur, was determined he was the heir of King Arthur, and his son was going to be Arthur after him. So everything went to Prince Arthur, who then died. Henry VIII got no training for statehood. His father was so paranoid about not having an heir that he absolutely suffocated him once he became the heir to the throne. You couldn't even get to Henry's, um, the young Henry's, bedroom if you like his chambers without passing through his father's rooms first he only had his friends chosen by his father he could only engage in sports chosen by his father he could do nothing on his own um, didn't go to council meetings did nothing at all he was really held down by his father so when he became king it's whoopee i'm king i can do what i like
2: and <laughs> um, he did and he spent quite a lot of that money
4: <laughs> he he's got through money like nothing on earth um, Henry VII had had the idea that kings should look splendid. Henry VIII took that to the nth degree. Um, yes, splendid, lots of money, lots of jousting, lots of tournaments, very, very little time spent on the business of state that was all delegated to others, particularly Cardinal Wolsey, who rose from very little, became the king's right hand man because he was prepared to run after him and was clever enough to suggest to him what he ought to think um, and, and make sure what the court, what the king thought um, was done. So yeah, he I have not a lot of time, I'm afraid, for Henry VIII. <laughs>
2: But I think it's all of the drama and the last five wives and everything is all just the last 10 years. I think, like you say, we slice history. And what we don't realise is that he was nigh on like on his silver wedding anniversary with Catherine of Aragon before he started acting up, wasn't he?
4: Yeah, it was kind of um, he was the one that determined he was going to marry Catherine of Aragon. That had been all off for a while before he came to the throne. One of his first acts was to run into her chambers and proposed to her um, and they were married very very quietly as if they were still afraid somebody was going to stop it because henry the seventh had had it on and off depending on whether there was dowry forthcoming or not um so it was his choice to marry catherine but when she failed to give him an heir he became even more paranoid than his father um, of not having an heir all the remaining plantagenets that he could lay his hands on were executed on on one reason or another. Oh, yeah make sure
2: the, there was the no pole family gets it don't they absolutely Buckingham.
4: yeah yeah anybody who had any claims at all um was <laughs> well, lost it under henry the um so yeah he, he had to he was so determined to have an heir um uh, we then have anne boleyn i very recently saw a, a, a the um art gallery um power of the Tudors um, exhibition picture of Anne Boleyn if you look into her eyes you could see mischief there um, she was one of those who seemed to me was going to cause trouble wherever she went um, and she bit off a bit more than she could chew with Henry um Again, she failed to give him an heir, so off with Anne and on with the next one. Jane Seymour sadly died. would be interesting to know what would have happened if she hadn't. Um, she'd had further children, but she died. Um, and then, as you say, a succession of wives, in the course of which, of course, we ended up with the Reformation. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't Henry's choice. Um, he had not, well, he had written um, in support of the Pope after Martin Luther um, and the, the Protestants, rising on on the continent um he'd actually written this thing himself the defense of the seven sacraments if you look on our coins to the present day you'll see an f d on on the coins, Fid Death, Defender of the Faith, um, was the title given by the Pope to Henry VIII. So he was supporting the Pope um, for a long time. It's only when he needed a divorce, the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. So, okay, it's off with the Pope. So we had the Reformation, but it, it wasn't Henry's choice of Reformation. It was very much influenced by those who were pushing to go further and the other party that were pushing to go back to what we'd had before and it ended up with a compromise, the Church of England, which is neither as extreme Protestant or Catholic. It's somewhere in between um, because again of the Great British Compromise.
3: <laughs> Theresa, this has been uh, a dizzying but really interesting run through. Folks, you know the rant, not via Amazon, please, for reasons of not wanting to anger me, amongst other things. Um, (laughs) Go to the History Hack bookstore. Link's in the description. Go buy it. It's a great read. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org